They never found his body, but they say his spirit lives in the forest. This forest. A maniac. A thing no longer human. They say he lives on whatever he can catch. Eats them raw. Alive, maybe. And every year he picks on a summer camp and seeks his revenge for the terrible things those kids did to him. Every year he kills. Right now he's out there watching, waiting. So don't look. He'll see you. Don't breathe. He'll hear you. Don't move. You're dead! Secret Cinema, the podcast that gets a thrill hunting for vulnerable films. I'm Paolo Carone, my co-host is Carrie Chafee, and we're going it alone again for a discussion of Tony Malum's 1981 summer camp slasher, The Burning. I don't have any notes, so here's Carrie with the plot summary. Camp counselors Todd and Michelle of Camp Stonewater are ready to take the teenage campers for their annual canoe trip down Devil's Creek. In the evening, Todd regales the campers with the legend of Cropsy, a former camp caretaker who was the victim of a terrible prank that resulted in him engulfed in flames. What Todd doesn't know is that Cropsy has just been released from the hospital after five years of recovery, and he's looking for retribution. Will Todd and Michelle rescue the campers from Cropsy, or will they feel the burn of his revenge? The Burning screenplay is the product of five credited writers. Harvey Weinstein, Tony Malum, and Brad Gray each receive story credits, and Peter Lawrence and Bob Weinstein are credited with the screenplay. And yet, the dialogue and the story are some of the film's weaker elements. In our first clip, a typical summer camp mess hall scene, we move through a series of the film's running bits. Camp bully Glazer hitting on the object of his affection, Sally, Glazer threatening his bunkmate Dave and primary target Alfred, and Dave playing up his role as the camp's man who can get things while flirting with Marnie, mixed in with other bits of business. It should give you a sense of the general quality of dialogue, and as a bonus, you can hear how little Jason Alexander's voice has changed since his debut role. Here's that clip. Hey, girls. Tomorrow in my canoe, huh? Okay. Maybe. Maybe. What do you mean maybe? Hey, what's the matter? You don't trust me? Oh. Hey, uh, hey, Redford, let's go. Come on. Huh? Wait a minute, I'm talking to her. Hey, I'm talking to her. Can I talk to her too? 
Like, what harm is he doing? He's been staring at me. That's the harm he's doing. Maybe he wants your body glazing. Ah. <laughs> so, uh, you girls all set for the trip tomorrow? Nothing I can get you? Life jacket? Spermicide? Oh! Hey, you gotta be prepared. You know what I mean, huh? <laughs> oh, God. All right, which one of you guys got my vitamin E? Vitamin E? Christ, Woodstock, you don't believe in all that crap. Just don't knock it. You leave my champ alone, huh? Well, I haven't got it. I'm going back to the cabin to get it. All right, quiet. Quiet, please. Quiet, please. One hard-to-ignore element of the film is the casually shitty treatment of women by the film's male characters, something we elaborate on in the discussion. In our second clip, Alfred has just been caught peeping on Sally during her shower, and camp counselor and hero-by-default Todd doesn't exactly punish him for it. Here's that clip. All right, Alfred, what the hell were you doing out there? Huh? What were you trying to pull? Come on, if you don't talk to me, you're going to be talking to the supervisor, and I don't think you want that. You know, I saved you a lot of embarrassment out there by not bawling you out in front of the other kids. I think you owe me something for that. Start talking. I only wanted to scare her. You think she's going to understand that? Or the supervisor? Or Glazer? Oh, what about Glazer? Look, it's, it's not just Glazer. It's everybody. I mean, they're all always picking on me. I don't have any friends. I didn't want to come to this camp to begin with, you know? It's, it's like the army. I mean, the, the, someone's always telling me what to do all the time. It's the same thing every year. I sort of know what you're going through. Five years ago, when I was in summer camp, I didn't just get bawled out by the counselor. I got sent home. You did? Yeah. You don't have to take on this whole camp by yourself. If you've got a problem, if you want someone to talk to, I'm here. Okay? And for our third and final clip, we bring you an excerpt from Rick Wakeman's score for The Burning, a ridiculously upbeat piece titled Doin' It. Here's Doin' It, and we'll see you on the other side for a discussion of The Burning.
Welcome to The Secret Cinema, and uh, it's just Carrie and I again, just the two of us, and we are talking about something less romantic than usual, the 1981 <laughs> Tony, M- was it Malin? Malum? Wait, I wrote it down. What is Malum. it? Malum. Malum. The Tony Malum, the great director, <laughs> Tony Malum's... <laughs> World-renowned. 1981... Summer camp horror classic, The Burning. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, so it's a movie called The Burning. And we're going to talk about it, if my words come out right. So, Carrie, this is your second time seeing this movie. What did you think about it? Well, there wasn't a lot of burning in it. But what I thought of the movie... It um, only needs to have one burning to live up to the title. <laughs> That's true. And they had two, so I guess they... they... So the, the title's wrong. It should have been Two Burnings. <laughs> the Burnings. It's just, it's just called Two Burnings. <laughs> <laughs> but if they had added an S, it would have been uh, foreshadowing. Anyway, okay, what did I think? Well, I actually... I'm a horror movie fan, and so this fitting into the campground slasher... Uh, thriller genre, it, it works for me. I really like it. Um, there's also some pretty great people in this movie, which make it uh, fun to watch. Like, Jason Alexander's in this movie. and His debut role. Yeah, his film debut. Uh, young little George uh, Costanza. And uh, I was by far attracted to him the most of all the camp children. Uh, I shouldn't call them children if I'm talking about attraction. Uh, youth? Teenagers? Remind, I'm going to remind you that this is your review of the movie. I know, but right now I'm reviewing <laughs> Jason Alexander. All right. <laughs> he was the highlight. <laughs> he was a highlight for me. Um, but I really like this movie. I think the things that work well in this movie are that it's really well directed it looks great. It has no right to look as good as it does, considering uh, it was made pretty cheaply by people who weren't um, necessary. Like the producers and and things weren't necessarily super experienced in making movies. And the story, uh, although sometimes it has trouble with continuity as far as editing and things, the story is entertaining, and the whole time you're watching it, you're I uh, enjoyed watching it. I didn't think it was that scary. So if I guess if I was grading it on a scale of it being a horror movie, I would give it a D plus. <laughs> but as far as an enjoyable movie, I would give it a B plus. Well, that was confusing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's right. what I go for. Well, I I agree with uh, the the argument that this is more or less terrible as a horror movie in terms of the fact that it is not scary. There are jump scares in this movie and most of them aren't even scary because they're, they're very telegraphed. But this movie, like if you compare it against most movies, it obviously comes across as uh, less professional, less polished, um, very simplistic and straightforward. It's really not aiming very high. Uh, it's clearly part of a trend of slasher movies in the early 80s. It shares a lot of tropes. But, like Carrie said, it's very, very well made in some specific ways that really heighten the value of it, especially because most slasher movies from this era are not well made at all. Uh, I'm looking at Friday the 13th, specifically, 
And so watching something like this that just bothers to get like good shots and have good lighting and yeah, there are plenty of problems, uh, but the filmmaking really saves this and keeps what would probably just be a generic, forgettable summer camp horror movie, which there are very many of. There's so uh, many of into them. Into something that, while not being like a movie that I would immediately recommend to anybody, is if you are into this genre, it's definitely worth seeing. And it has... Uh, a couple, well, one scene in particular that is awesome. Like, one of the best scenes of this genre. And it's definitely worth watching this movie even just to see that scene. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, and part of the reason we wanted to talk about this this movie, um, besides the fact that we love horror movies, uh, is that this movie is what kind of launched the Weinsteins. Am I saying that right? Yeah, Harvey Weinstein and, and Bob, Bob Weinstein. Weinstein. It launched the Weinsteins into the movie world, and they are responsible for so many movies and TV shows in the last, what, 30 years? They, well, they, they are huge players in the production game. With this movie, they created Miramax Productions. Yes. If you, when you see the opening, you see Miramax without any logo or anything. And I remember reading that Miramax is named after their parents, yeah. Miriam and Max. Like, i never known that before. I didn't either. I thought it was just a word. And yeah. I, even if you don't know a lot about movies, you've seen a movie or a TV show that is produced by Miramax. Well, Harvey yeah, Harvey Weinstein has, produ has won an Oscar for producing Shakespeare in Love, but he essentially is the reason why Tarantino more or less gets to do whatever he wants. Yeah. Is because the Weinsteins work on uh, Tarantino movies. They help yeah. produce them, oh, among other things. Uh, I think I, one of them runs or ran Dimension. and so yes, Bob. Bob. And Bob so he won. supervised the Scream movies. And I, watching this, this whole time, I was like, God, it makes so much sense that they would have been able to turn the Scream franchise and Tarantino movies into, like, massively successful mainstream things yeah. because this is clearly, even if this isn't an, essentially their background, Horror is something that they worked in well enough to understand and appreciate it, or gore, or let's just say, like, the less uh, classy genres yeah. of film. I feel like this movie would be more of a hidden gem if it weren't for the Weinstein's reputation nowadays. Like, I think the reason that this movie still has... I mean, it was it was successful at its time, which is why it launched the Weinsteins, but... No, it wasn't successful at the time. It was relatively... Like... Didn't it? It made enough money. It made that its budget back, but it it sounded like in the United States it did really bad. I read that over it did really well in Japan. Yeah, of course, Japan loves <laughs> stuff like this. Twin Peaks also famously did very well in Japan. Yeah, I read uh, it that this movie was like one of the most successful horror movies ever released in Japan. And I found out the really crazy fact that this in Britain was released as a double feature with Eyes of a Stranger, and I don't know if you remember this, but it's. Eyes of the Strangers from the director of Shockwaves. And it's the oh, one man. with Jennifer Jason Lee, And she's like mute or deaf or something like that. Starting to ring a bell. Maybe. Uh, it's, or blind because it's Eyes of the Stranger. I barely remember. It wasn't great. But it was released in Britain as a double feature. And the double feature was the dis distribution was handled by Handmade Films, which is the production company that George Harrison created to Whoa. fund Life of Brian. Whoa. And Life of Brian was only, like, a couple of years before this. So it's, like, Life of Brian, and then, like, 
less than five years later, The Burning. Five years. Yeah, how weird. Well, and and the other thing about The, the Burning is, so part of the why the Weinsteins made this movie is they really wanted to break into the movie industry and they saw that a really easy and affordable way to do that was to make a low-budget horror thriller and they had access to this campground and so they and they grew up in like the New York New Jersey area and so there's this urban legend of this uh, serial killer named Cropsey which I tried to look into its mythology and it's, yeah, me too. And it, it was it was difficult to find any credible sources on Cropsey. Yeah, the main thing that comes up when you look him up now is like I read an article that more or less said that like he was the person. He was like the boogeyman for people in like a certain part of New Jersey and New York, where yeah, your like, parents would say like if you don't go to bed. Cropsy's going to come and get you, or yeah. like, don't stay out too late trick-or-treating, or you'll get hunted down by Cropsy. And the big thing with this story, and I missed the dates on this, so I don't know if this is, to some degree, what is being referenced in the movie, but after a certain point, in the, at a certain point, that area that believed in Cropsy ended up having, like, a, a real serial killer come who was, like, taking children. Right, And yeah. so, like, but that's, that part... I don't really see how any of what I found about Cropsey lines up with this movie, other than there is a character named Cropsey that children. Yeah, it was out. it was essentially just the inspiration to write this movie. Yeah. It, it was uh, he pitched the idea, and they were like, "Yep, sounds good." And so they went with the villain of the movie being called Cropsey. Um, but in the burning, Cropsey is a, a caretaker at a campground. Camp Blackfoot, right? Camp Blackfoot. And this group of five guys, five guys, uh, they decide to play a prank on Cropsey. It's never really explained why they have this uh, anger towards Cropsey. Well, it's that later there's a scene where Todd, more or less the main character of the movie, who's like one of the camp counselors, is telling the story of Cropsey. And he specifically says that uh, every, oh, like every, well, everybody hated Cropsey. Everybody. Mm -hmm. And he said he was a sadist. Like, if he caught you, he would go out of his way to punish you because he enjoyed punishing mm -hmm. people. Right. And the kids, in the beginning, I guess, like, they were rich kids or something, and they decided they weren't going to put up with Cropsy, and so... Yeah. We ain't going to take this Cropsy no more! Yeah. <laughs> we're going to scare the shit out of Cropsy. What's the line? <laughs> and... Oh. And well, so the line was tonight's the night that we scared the shit out of Cropsy. I was close. <laughs> you were really close. I'm mad as hell and I'm not taking this Cropsy anymore. Um anyway, okay. So Cropsy is uh these group this group of guys they they sneak in to Cropsy's bunk or or cabin or whatever and one of the guys sneaks in the other guys are waiting at the window watching him, and he sneaks in and he pulls something out of a box, and at first you don't see what it is, and then it's revealed once Cropsy wakes up and is terrified that, what was well, it? we should say too, Cropsy wakes up because all of the kids tap on the window that faces him with their faces more or less pressed up against the window. Yeah. Which seems to be like, I mean, I definitely pulled pranks. I still pull pranks and fuck with people. <laughs> and one of the key things is that you don't want to make your face immediately <laughs> evident to the person who is a sadist 
who... Yeah, they really weren't worried about getting away with it. Also, the skull <laughs> that they leave in in Cropsey's uh, cabin is clearly a skull dug up from a grave. Yeah. Like, it's, like, blatantly <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> so, so I hadn't gotten to that yet, but they pull out of the box, they pull a skull, and it's, like, covered in maggots and worms and all this, you know, like, dirt. And then... They somehow had lit candles in the in the eye holes of the skull. And so when Cropsey wakes up, he sees the skull, he screams, he goes like, ah! And he knocks the skull off the table. The skull, because there were candles in it, it of course catches whatever it's touching on fire. So it, it hits a blanket. It, it lands on his legs. Yeah, first. it lands yeah. on his legs, it catches his pants on fire, then it catches the blanket that's under his pants on fire. Then the skull rolls on the ground. And no, he stands up. So he stands up, and the gas can catches on fire, and of course, you know, Cropsy is now in, engulfed in flames, and he's flailing around, and he's stuck in his cabin, and he, uh, what does he, like, knock the door down? He, like, bursts through. Like, he, like, like the Kool-Aid man, he bursts out. I'm pretty sure it's just, like, through the door, but I am foggy on that. And he runs into a lake, and then he, he basically disappears. Like, they, not disappears, but the group of guys are like, oh, Cropsy fell in the lake. Um, all right, we're going to walk away from this. <laughs> and then the next scene is Cropsy's in the hospital, and this orderly is about to, is bragging to a new doctor, like, hey, man, you you think you, you've seen it all, but you've never seen this. And he takes him in to see Cropsy, and Cropsy grabs his hand and you know his arm is like peeling of skin and it's all burnt up and then credits well and that moment too is crazy just because the whole it's it's this little brief scene and all the stuff if you really think about it all the stuff with cropsy in the hospital kind of makes no real sense like there's not there's no need for it at all like like once the body disappears from the opening scene, you can literally go five years later and go back to the camp. Like, you don't need to see him, like, recuperate or yeah. anything. But, specifically, he's in this hospital for these crazy burns and everything, and the, the orderly that's taking the doctor is, like, doing this whole spiel where he's like, like, man, you'll, I've seen some crazy shit. Like, you won't believe the stuff you'll see, and I gotta show you this guy. And so he's like, he knows, it's not like... It's not like Cropsy's burnt condition is a surprise to him. Like, he's going out of his way to be like, Doc, when you see this, it's going to scare you. So when Cropsy grabs him and, it, 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 like, he screams, he doesn't just go like, ah! He suddenly goes like, ah! It's like a long, drawn-out scream, but it's like he's seen this guy. <laughs> he's very <laughs> yeah. familiar with this guy. He's taking someone to see this guy. This is not a surprise. Well, and then, cut to five years later, which... This was just a little uh, thing I noticed, but uh, early on in the movie, they label the, the scene with a subtitle that says Camp Blackfoot, and they capitalize the C and they capitalize the B for Camp and Blackfoot, but then when they say, when it says five years later, it's all in lowercase letters. And I just thought that was a very strange font I choice. I didn't even notice that, yeah. But anyway, so five years later, five years uh, Cropsy gets out of the hospital, which it took him five years <laughs> yeah, to recover. fire damage. Yeah. I mean, like, burns, burns, burns are, are the worst. They are just the but, worst. I mean, like, injuries. Did oh he, my God. I mean, he must have had no family or anyone to take care of him because, like, at very yeah, least. Yeah, he sounds like, he sounds like a creepy old guy who worked at a campground and always worked there. 
And so when he got hurt, you know, who, I guess the campground people maybe well, went to visit him. But it's the 80s thing of the campground just, like, trying to go business as usual. I mean, this happens in every one of these summer camp movies where, like, someone gets injured and, and they just brush it over. But it's just so weird that, like, in five years, yeah. they would keep him at the, like, what is the hospital bill for five years of reparative therapy? Yeah, I don't think that being a camp counselor would pay for that. No. Yeah, especially when you're a full-time resident at a hospital for five years. Oh my god, can you imagine nowadays? Yeah. You'd be in debt for the rest of your life. Yeah. You like, would basically have to die. Like, it would be really silly if the movie, instead of saying five years later, said, like, several months later. <laughs> or it's like, a, a while later. It would You would laugh, but it would inherently make it less absurd. Five years is, like, way too long. I, it, I almost should have just said, sometime in the future yeah somewhere <laughs> in the 20th century i like i like vague time jumps i'm a fan <laughs> Ooh, but as as cropsy is leaving uh there's like voiceover playing where it's like the doctors things they've said to him or uh um, it, it's it's it doesn't it's not clear when it's happening. We're not seeing anything. We're just hearing it. But it's stuff like I know you resent those kids. Try to forget what happened. It was just a mistake. Like all this type of stuff. And it's like it's like you know it's, we were we you saw the movies called The Burning. Uh, you saw what happened to him. He's not gonna forgive. He's not gonna forget. And um, it's just but it's like also. And again, the five-year thing. Like, how do you spend five years in the hospital and be like, like, well, those those sweet boys made a mistake. He should have made a friend, you know? Like a nurse. Yeah. If he was going to be there for five years, like, oh, hey, I'm leaving. It was uh, great spending time with you. I'm going to go back and murder some kids. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, before he even gets to the, to the camp and going back to the camp to kill the kids, he decides to... Uh, go, go to the red light district. <laughs> yeah, go home with a hooker. He takes her, or she takes him home, rather. And the whole time, she's like, come on, baby, I got work to do. Like, let's hurry this up. And he is in shadow, and he's wearing a hat. And then finally she sees him, and she starts freaking out. And he grabs her by the throat stabs her in the stomach with some scissors and then kind of pushes her out of a window but not really out of the window yeah. he pushes her and it's that Dario Argento thing where a person gets pushed against the window just so that it, the glass can explode and they can have the glass sound effect yeah it's like they're like Tsh. yeah <laughs> they just it's, it's like a human is shattered like that sort of thing and then there's that great shot of lightning yeah. outside that's really inexplicable and then there's blood splashed on her vanity mirror and then cut again there are a lot of at the beginning of this movie like the first half of this movie there's a lot of really sudden cuts yeah like they could not think of a way to naturally segue from one thing to another that was really the only besides the continuity errors that was the only real problem with the editing was those sudden random cuts it should be mentioned too before we get too far off of this that the the whole scene with the prostitute um there is like as they pointed out cropsy cropsy's whole thing is that he is burned by these kids the whole movie is him going to not the summer camp but an adjacent summer camp and like trying to get some form of like unclear revenge but 
the very first person killed in the entire movie is a totally tangential character who didn't do anything to him, and there's no sexual hang-up tied to the Cropsey character, which is usually a thing in these movies. Like, there is pointedly no opportunity for that to come in, unless the idea is that he's such a sadist that he kills her, but he hasn't killed before. So it really, this scene is just here to be an early murder to keep the audience. Interested. I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb and say that Cropsey is not a good murderer. He is not very good at murdering. He kills some random hooker first, and then throughout the movie, he doesn't even kill the people that caused the burning. Yeah. Well, it's He just he just is angry at the camp and so he's like, "Well, I'll just kill the kids at the camp and that'll that'll be good enough." And I, I get that thinking like if, as far as movie storytelling, but it would have been I don't know. Well, like I just mentioned too, it's not even the same camp. Yeah, but one of the kids that... I know, but they they say Camp Blackfoot burned down entirely. Yeah. So it's like even, it's like it's not like he went there because he knew one of the kids was at this other camp because it doesn't seem like he could have known that. And there's no scene where we, like, when Cropsey gets out where we see him, like, gathering information or learning anything. So it's, like, pretty much coincidence that he ends up killing anybody. He, actually, well, technically he doesn't kill anybody actually related to what happened to him. But it's a coincidence that he gets as close as he does. Yeah. One of the nice things I really like about when Cropsey, uh, we're, we're in the point of view of Cropsey, is the director or the cinematographer uh, had the smart idea of rubbing Vaseline on the edges of the lens. And so the shot, whenever you're, you're as an audience member, you're in the point of view of Cropsey, you see kind of these like blurred edges around whatever he's looking at. Um, it's a really nice effect. I like it. Yeah. There's also some really good sound effects that go with whenever you're in the point of view of Cropsey. There's like this this heartbeat type noise. It's like, dun dun, dun dun. It's very dun, similar dun. to Friday the 13th. Like, yeah. if, if this movie hadn't have been like, pitched and uh like early versions of it have been written before friday the 13th come out it would be impossible to think of it as anything but a friday yeah the 13th it would have been like a straight ripoff but um but yeah that's coincidence that two movies came out very similarly well both of them are essentially capitalizing on halloween because yeah. halloween definitely came first and summer camps because uh, keep in mind, you're trying to find a place where teenagers can get murdered, and you want them to be isolated so they have nowhere to run to, and they yep. have no adults to protect them, and there's no police. Summer camps make really great sense for something like that. Anyway, okay. So, we touched a little bit about the Weinsteins, but one of the things I also want to mention is they created the idea and wrote the screenplay of this movie with, with a few other people, but... This is only one of two writing credits that they have. And the Weinstein brothers both have over 300 producer credits on IMDb. Yeah. So 
they were like, eh, we're not really interested in writing. We're just going to produce And in all fairness, the screenplay very much screams people who are not interested in writing. Oh, yeah. yeah, definitely. But I just thought it was interesting that this is one of two credits for the both of them. The other credit is, I've never actually seen this movie, but it's called Playing for Keeps. It's a, a 1986 movie with Marissa Tomei as yeah. the main character. I've not seen it either. Yeah. But uh, that's the only other writing credit that the Weinsteins have. But one of the other guys that helped them come up with the story and write the story, he, his name is Brad Gray, and he actually, he just passed away last month in, yep. in May. But he was the CEO of Paramount. And before he did Paramount, he did The Burning. <laughs> but he was mostly producer. He did things like uh, The Sopranos, The Departed, Happy Gilmore. He did Mr. Show. He did The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, Running with Scissors, The Wedding Singer. He co-founded Plan B Production Company with Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston. Like, he was a big player, too. So... Part of the reason this movie is so interesting is it's almost like an origin story for the big producers nowadays. Like, they, this is how they started. Yeah. Well, and on top of that, like we said, uh, Jason Alexander makes his debut in this movie, but two other people, and actually the two other people who make their debut are now Oscar winners. So this Wait, is... Wait, really? Yeah. Holly Hunter. I knew she had an Oscar. Holly Hunter, who... If you don't know who Holly Hunter is, that's crazy, but she's in <laughs> Raising Arizona and The Piano and 13, to name something shitty, uh, but she's in so much stuff. Holly Hunter is she's really amazing. She's in Broadcast amazing. News. Broadcast News. She's really great. Home for the um, Holidays. But she makes she her was debut on... in this as like a glorified extra, more or yeah, less. Yeah, she only has one line of dialogue. She's in a lot of scenes. She's on screen a lot. But as, like, one of a group of girls laughing. Yeah, I mean, she's at a camp. She's not so murdered. She's, she doesn't get to die in the movie. She's one of the campers. Her name is Sophie. Oh, this. I didn't even know she had yeah. a name. But Fisher Stevens is uh, the other person. Like I said, uh, Fisher Stevens also made his debut in this. What did he get his Oscar for? Fisher I didn't Stevens, know he had an Oscar. Well, because Fisher Stevens has been doing documentaries. And he won the Best Documentary Oscar for something he produced which was The Cove. No way! Yeah. He, he and the director were the two people who got Oscars for The Cove. I didn't and know the, that. The Cove is really... I loved it when I saw it back in college. I haven't seen it since, but I thought it was a really great movie, and it's a really cool thing for him to have won an Oscar for. And he also directed the documentary, I think... I, I saw this earlier. Maybe, maybe he didn't direct it, maybe he just produced it. There's a documentary called Crazy Love, which is about the, this, like man and woman who have this it's a documentary about their relationship but at some point this is the key thing about the documentary was that at some point the guy threw acid on the woman's face for oh her breaking God. up with him and then she ended up going back to him <gasps> and it's like a, it's really like one of those crazy stories where you're like what the fuck is wrong with you lady and she's <laughs> just like no i'm just so happy it's crazy yeah, love crazy i guess love, yeah Weird, I didn't know that Fisher Stevens won for a documentary. Yeah. Also for The Cove, yeah. which I have never been able to bring myself to watch. It's because great. Like, the only part that's really hard to watch is the, dolphins? the, the Cove footage scene, yeah. but that's oh at the very God. end. I don't, but I don't think I could handle it. I had a hard enough time watching Blackfish. 
And it's definitely, I feel like the Cove, well, because here's the thing, is that Blackfish is a documentary, but the Cove is like if a documentary was also an action movie. Oh because gosh. most of, like, the first hour or so of the movie is the process through which they get into Japan, get into the area, and then, like, sneak the cameras in. Because it, they essentially have to do espionage right. to get it in there. Yeah. And so, by the time you get to the stuff where it's, like, the brutal killing of dolphins, you're like, well, I gotta see this because I've sat through so much Man, to get to this it. footage. Yeah, it's great. Or I, at least, I remember it being great. It's been I a long time. I love Fisher Stevens. Okay, but if you don't know Fisher Stevens from that, what else would they know them? I always from? think of him from the episode of It's Always Sunny, where he writes the review about the bar, where he calls it the worst <laughs> the worst pub in Philly, and they tie him to a chair and try to make him write a new <laughs> review. Uh, he's in way more stuff than that. He's in Short Circuit right. as, a, as a racist uh, <laughs> caricature, I'm pretty sure. Um He's I he's one of those people who's in a lot he's of stuff. He's in so but many he, things. He doesn't have like a big famous role. Uh, to really, I guess shortcut is really the most famous short thing. Short circuit. Short yeah, short circuit, not shortcuts. Yeah, if he was in shortcuts, he'd probably have a more successful career. Yeah. But yeah, short circuit. He'd be making that Lyle Lovett money. <laughs> that Andy McDowell money. Oh yeah. Well, she makes good royalties, but anyway. Yeah, hell yeah. So now we're kind of five years later, Cropsey's gotten out, and we go to the camp, and a big thing with this movie um, is that pretty much from this point until the hour mark of the movie, so like the next, I want to say this is probably about 50 minutes of the movie, Yeah, is we get a lot of... Yeah, because the first part of the movie is, like you said, only like 10 or 15 minutes. It's really quick. The tight, the titular burning, or one of the two titular burnings of the it's film... It's only five minutes. Literally, by the five-minute mark, Cropsy is on fire. So it's like, yeah. right, the movie gives you something around the top of the gate. Like I said, there's this prostitute getting killed, and I really am positive that it's there for the audience because, like I said, the next 50 minutes is... There's 50 minutes where we're kind of introduced to the the new campground. Do you remember what it was called? No, I don't like, think they ever say the I name. I thought it was like Stonecraft or something like that. But I, if you don't know, then I don't know for I sure either. I don't know either. either. But so they we're kind of introduced to this camp and who is there. And we'll name people when we get to the scenes with them. But it's this is part of the reason why we, I said I would have a hard time recommending this movie to anyone but genre fans of this. Because this is so thoroughly uh, just like a, a section that is intended for a first-time viewer to be goosed. To have these moments where you're like, oh, is someone finally going to get killed? Oh, is someone finally going to get killed? And you keep, it just like the movie just keeps like, it'll give you like Cropsy's point of view and it'll get really close to somebody and then they will, they will go back to their friends and they won't get killed. Or you'll have someone come into a cabin with somebody and then the lights will turn on and it's just like a camp counselor. And it's 50 minutes of stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, they psych you out a lot. And more or less, like, to give the movie some credit, essentially it's kind of putting people in certain positions for things that will happen. But that also that's giving the movie a lot of credit because there is so little that happens that they don't need 50 minutes to do it. It's really just like, uh, let me see, even looking through my notes, there's not even really a lot of things uh, until the canoe trip, which is... There's a lot of... 
camp drama. But like, there's, like, boys and girls, you know, liking each other, not liking each other. Ooh, are you going to meet me at the at the dance later? Yeah, or, but there's... You know, there's that kind of stuff. But, yeah, there's not really a lot of plot development. Like, this movie, we, we Carrie and I both agreed on this, like, very quickly in the movie, but the number of similarities between this and Wet Hot American Summer are ridiculous. Like, even... Oh, yeah. Like, to, almost to the same extent that Sleepaway Camp is evocative. Yeah. Or, or Wet Hot American Summer is evocative. Well, that. and we agreed that that would be a great double feature, this Absolutely. and then Sleepaway Camp. There's again. even the baseball scene in The Burning, also, where all yeah. the campers play baseball. And also, there's the whole age thing where a bunch of the campers are, like, mysteriously, like, in their 30s. <laughs> and there's the whole thing of, of, like, sexual deviance. Yeah, but... The sexual deviance in this seems to be more just, like, inherent to the 80s and yeah. the genre, whereas Sleepaway Camp, it's a very intentional, like, oh, yeah. subversion. But the, the reason I, I say we thought of Wet Hot American Summer is because if you can think of the type of camp drama that happened in Wet Hot American Summer, that's what we're talking about. We, you really, we, the reason I'm trying to emphasize that we don't need to get too into detail with it is because it really is not special. And what, like we said, what's special about this movie is the way it's made. And the screenplay is not one of those things that was made <laughs> to be special. It was made because they're like, we want to get in the film industry. This is the easiest this genre is to write. This is our gateway. This is our gateway. And so, like I said, this it's it's not a section where you watch and you're just like, oh, what is this going to end? No, I enjoyed it. It's Yeah, it's fun. It's distracting. But it is, in this type of podcast, there's, it's... It's really tough to find something to tell you about. Yeah, like like one of the things that I'll just pinpoint one thing. One of the things that happens is uh, this character Sally. She takes a shower, and you get to see her her boobs. Um, and she's you know washing herself, and she hears someone enter the shower room, and this literally happens in Sleepaway Camp. Yeah, well, and also this and is another I, one of those fake scares that we were mentioning. Yeah, too. but. But it ends up being that the person who entered the showers was just a male camper who was a creep. It's never yeah, really Alfred. Yeah, it's never really established what Alfred's deal is, other than he's kind of a wacko. He's a wacko who says he says he has no friends, and then literally the next scene we see him in after he says he has he no has friends, friends, he has three friends. Yeah. So it's I think really he's hard. Like to... a sexual voyeur. The key thing, though, is that this, like Carrie's saying. <laughs> Uh, because he does this to Sally, he earns the ire of Glazer, who is not Sally's boyfriend, but is this guy who is, like, trying to make the moves on Sally. He's the machismo guy in the movie. Yeah, but there's, like, something where Sally clearly... It's not like Sally is just like, oh, this dumbass. And Sally is into him, but also is, like, he's, he's a dumb musclehead. Yeah, she's so, like... She's, like, simultaneously attracted and disgusted by Glazer. Yeah, which, and also, at the same time this is happening, there's another woman. Karen. Karen, who is attracted to a man named Eddie, who is also a disgusting guy. Um, yeah, I, w I said to Paolo during the movie that it was the aggressive, creepy, sexual men in this movie are almost more scary than Cropsy. Yeah. Because, like, uh, Glazer's thing is he keeps, like, he keeps really aggressively pursuing Sally. And even when she says no, he's, he's like, you know, trying to get at her and, you know, be around her. 
and he's like putting other people down so that he can be around Sally. And then with Karen and Eddie, Karen flat out tells another woman, I'm scared of Eddie. When I'm with him, all he wants is sex and I'm not ready for that. And then when the next scene we see her and Eddie like skinny dip together and she makes him promise like you're not gonna get weird or it's okay if we just swim right and he's like yeah I promise she gets in the water and he immediately is feeling her up and like yeah baby let's do this don't fight it what why'd you come out here if you didn't want it and then she's like ew Eddie get away from me and she ends up running off and she gets murdered yeah <laughs> she's actually the first murder after the hooker. Yeah. Karen gets murdered while she's looking for her clothes because Cropsy took her clothes yeah. and then hit them. Well, and actually, it's good that you brought up the Sally thing and then we got to the Karen thing because those are the two things that happen that get paid off later in the movie. Yeah. And then the other thing is that, uh, the other, uh, so the third thing is that they, they're like, hey, there's a canoe trip. And then they go on the canoe trip. Yeah, and canoe trip also happens in Wet Hot American Summer. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think it's like, it's, yeah, it's some sort of rafting trip, but it's like, again, it's like the, they're wearing the same clothes. It's the same oh, yeah. sort of thing. Like, the parallels are undeniable. It's and so there's like funny. banjo music playing when they go on. It's like this really silly moment where they're like fighting in the canoe. And it's a really, it's like a three minute long sequence where they're just like splashing each other in the canoes to banjo music. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, the, with Sally and Karen, so Sally and Glazer and Karen and Eddie, spoiler, all of them die. But the women die first, and then the men get murdered Yeah, later. And it's like, it's almost, it, it made me angry. Yeah. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah. I'm, I was upset that these women who were being harassed by these, like, terrible and aggressive men, like these... These uh, type A assholes, they get murdered first because of the men that are basically, like, aggressively pursuing them. Well, yeah, and I want to point this out. I, I don't know if it was John Carpenter who said this quote or George Romero, but to paraphrase one of them, on the topic of people dying, I'm almost positive it was John Carpenter talking about Halloween, but he said the reason people uh, die because they're having sex in a movie isn't because they're impure, it's because they're not paying attention. Yeah. That's the idea. And if you watch that in Halloween, it makes total sense. That, it, it, like, that logic translates. Here, it is seemingly the women are punished specifically because they allow themselves to be in these situations. Yeah. Like, there's no, like... It, it, like the Karen, as you said, she go, she Eddie is like, come on, just come in the water. And well, and she, we see Karen completely, completely naked, like naked. her bush is out and everything. And she 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 goes in the water, and Eddie is an asshole, and so she runs out. The uh, uh, Cropsy has stolen all of her clothes, so she puts her shoes on and is just like wandering through the woods naked. She finds a piece of her clothing, and that's when Cropsy comes up and slits her throat with garden shears. Which, yeah, by that's the way, his weapon of choice. These big uh, scissor-like garden choice. shears. Uh, yeah, these big scissor-like garden shears. He he stabs. Well, he stabs most people. He slits her throat with them for some reason. But yeah, Eddie is terrible to Karen, and then Karen dies, and then Sally Glazer spends the whole movie trying to get Sally. To like, sleep with her. To sleep with him. And then yeah. he finally gets her to have 
sex with him in a sleeping bag in the woods at a very questionable... I couldn't tell if it was night or day during this. I genuinely could not figure out what they were even going for based on the way it was shot. But at some point... Oh, well, very quickly into the sex... Um, Glazer comes. He prematurely ejaculates, <laughs> and she's like, "Is that it?" Yeah, she doesn't shit all? about it, but he's like, "I'm gonna get some matches so I can build us a fire." And he, so he he's runs. Young, they can do it again. Yeah, but he runs off, and she is more or less immediately killed. Like, yeah, like, she gets murdered right away. By so it's, again, like both of those women are killed immediately after like sexual encounters that they willingly are like. They're like they're like kind of nervous about it, or they're like like both Sally and Karen are not overly excited about these sexual encounters or these men. Even this whole movie, the the sexual encounters of this movie are really ambiguous and weird. There's some like very strange implications because also we haven't really talked about Alfred, but Alfred, as we mentioned, spies on Sally in the shower, and then he doesn't get punished. And instead, he's, like, brought into, as you mentioned, a group of friends who totally accept him. And then they go on a canoe trip, and he again creepily follows Glazer so he can, I assume, watch Sally and Glazer have sex. And instead, he ends up watching Glazer get murdered. And, I mean, Alfred never gets any comeuppance other than, like, you know, Cropsy chases him. It's really big. It seems mostly, like... Alfred is, like, a, a justification for the camera to be a certain place. More than anything. Well, like, Alfred is, is so undeveloped as a character that... Like, well, and that's that's where uh, I think... I mentioned this uh, while we were watching it, but I think that there's a huge De Palma influence on this movie because there's a lot of voyeurism stuff going on. Because even when they play the prank on Cropsey, they're seeing Cropsey through a window in his cabin. They're, like, watching him get pranked. Then there's all the point-of-view shots where we are Cropsey watching, you know, things happen. There's Alfred who is watching certain people do certain things throughout the movie. There's a lot of, like, voyeuristic crap happening in the movie that is very... Concerning, I guess, is the word I would use. I don't know what, like you said. I you know did that mention, you did mention it as Brenda Palma, but I think, I mean, to an extent, I'm sure not with the mask. No, I know, but Brian I'm just saying, like, I'm sure to an extent, it is influenced just in like the way that like all filmmaking of that era would be influenced by him. But I think to a certain extent, some things are like that window in the opening scene because it doesn't make any logical sense what they're doing cuz they're like I said they're 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 doing something that would 100% get them in a ton of trouble. Yeah. They dug up a skull from a grave and put flame in it and then put it in the caretaker's house. Yeah. Like they and they not only do that but then press their faces against the window that directly faces the guy so they can be like, "Hey motherfucker, here are the six guys who did this." Yeah, right. And so like that seems like that window is there for some sort of blocking purpose. Like oh, they're like, you're probably right. And and with the stuff with Cropsy, like it seems not like Brian De Palma voyeurism, but more like Halloween, where Halloween puts you in the point yeah. of view of Michael Myers. Well, yeah, and you mentioned yeah. the the noise or the the yeah. Like I think all the stuff, it's like like you said, the Brian De Palma influence is more just like Brian De Palma 
had been doing this stuff so long that it's starting to like we're seeing it start to creep into yeah well he's been at types. it at, for like a decade at least yeah yeah so it's like his type of genre isn't necessarily horror but horror filmmakers would have to be influenced by like the gore and the set pieces and stuff like yeah. this and as we hinted we're almost getting to it i don't want to jump to it yet but there is a great set piece in this movie. Oh yeah, uh, like a movie, uh, and so it you it, it there is like those De Palma esque things, but I think in this case a lot of them are just like De Palma has influenced the genre rather than this. Yeah, specific I think you're movie. right. I want to give a shout out to one of our our recent guests, Courtney, um, because when we went to we went to a horror marathon with Courtney and, and Ricardo and a few friends and one of the things that we instituted at the beginning of the marathon was we were guessing what the body count would be for the end of the day. <laughs> and so after every mi- movie, we'd compare, like, okay, how many people did you count that died? And I think there was even a movie that completely threw us off because, like, 75 people died yeah. in the movie. But anyway... Jason Lives. That's what yeah. it was, yeah. There's so many people died in that movie. <laughs> but one of the, the things I found out about The Burning before we watched it the second time was I found out what the body count was. And so while we were watching the movie, we were able to go, okay, this many people have died, so this many more people are going to die. And I kind of liked knowing like how many more people were going to die and yeah. and 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 uh, how many people had already died it was a nice i don't know for me it was kind of like a nice touchstone to be able to refer back to of like okay how far are we into this movie or like what still needs to happen or who do i think is going to die um i'm not saying that you should spoil movies for yourself and find out what the body count is but i just wanted to give a shout out to to Courtney and and our our crew from the movie festival for that idea. Yeah. Well, do you do you want to give the steps that get us from, hey, we're going on a canoe trip to the big scene? Go for it. You do it. Alright. Well, and once we get to the big scene, we're gonna get we're gonna get into this. But um get into it. Okay, so as I mentioned, there's a big three-day canoeing trip that seems to involve all of the characters, uh I want to say everyone except for there's like one uh, guy. It was a camp counselor who like runs the whole camp. He stays back, but it's seemingly every character that we've been introduced to up to this point goes on this three day canoe trip. So they go out there somewhere. They get somewhere where they camp for the night, and sometime during that night is when Karen dies. And so when they wake up the next morning, Karen's gone. They don't know what happened to her other than that they saw her with Eddie and they kind of knew the stuff about her being afraid of Eddie. And then the canoes are gone. All of them are gone. And so they're kind of, everyone's kind of panicked. I mean, they're, they're not panicking. They but think that maybe Karen took the yeah, canoes. Yeah, there's, there's but... mentioned earlier on in the movie that because she's afraid of Eddie, she asks permission from the head camp counselor that if something gets goes wrong during the canoe trip, she can just leave. And so they're thinking, like, well, maybe she took a canoe, uh, but then what happened to all the others? They're just, they're not sure, but they're, they're not, they're not panicking. They're just, like, confused and trying to figure out the situation. So Todd, who's the counselor that's more or less running the canoeing trip, 
very, very quickly builds a raft. <laughs> now that I think about it. Not only a raft, but paddles for the raft. A paddles, like nice paddles, but like a real deal raft. Because five people ride that raft away. Yeah. So it's a real raft, but he builds it out of like lumber found. And keep in mind, they say like, we can't walk back to camp because it's just the wilderness. <laughs> but they find like, like huge pieces of wood. Like pe- there's one piece of wood that they show when they're building the raft that is clearly like bigger than a railroad tie and it's just like out in the woods somewhere and i don't know where he's getting all this rope either but either way he makes he makes a raft and so the people that end up getting on is eddie gets on it uh fisher stevens's character woodstock gets on it Mm -hmm. um let me see who else there's Uh, two other girls fish who was one of the friends of alfred uh marnie who marnie is this girl who's like kind of sprinkled throughout the movie. She never has any major scenes besides this. But she's just like this actress who it seems like someone told her to be comic relief and then they never wrote her any jokes or told her to tell jokes. Yeah. Because she delivers all of her lines and expresses all of her emotions in the most like heightened, energetic, goofy way that like stands out from everyone else because it's so over the top. It's really weird. But Marnie and then some girl. A girl who whose name might have gotten said, but I never heard it during the movie. Was that the blonde girl? No. the uh, It was like the, the curly-haired... Oh, yeah. Pigtails? Like, pigtails. But so the five of them, they get on the raft, and they're going to row back for help. Or like just basically... Yeah, they're like the rescue team. Yeah, they're the rescue team. So they're rowing... Rescue for, team to the rescue! So they're... The five of them are rowing. They row for a while. At least they're like far out of sight of the other people and they're essentially on their own and they're on the river and they see one of the canoes floating ahead of them in the river and so they start paddling just they start paddling closer and closer and the movie like very immediately like this is one of the sequences that's really well shot because it starts um it feels like the moment they see it, they start speeding up to get closer to it, and time stretches out in this way that's not like unnecessarily padding the scene, but it's like it's it's like what it's you you can tell that there's something that's going to happen, but it's just a raft full of people roll, rowing up to a it's canoe. It's such a great scene. You're like you're just like what is going to happen? You're like you think oh because they haven't found uh, Karen's body yet. You're like. That's what it feels like is going to happen. That it's going to be like, Karen Bond. All the logic in here. Like, I think oh. I even said that. I was like, yeah. oh, it's going to be Karen and the canoe. They're gonna, it seems like they're going to find Karen's body. What happens is they get up, they get right up to the canoe. And as soon as they get up to it, Cropsy stands up, uh, holds the shears in the air. There's this great shot where the sh- he's like backlit. It's like the silhouette of Cropsy and the, the shears have like a little bit of a glare on them from the sun. And... Cropsy just starts like stabbing and he basically in this like like the one part of the movie that is kind of well edited he kills all five of them and this like we okay we just watched Inglorious Bastards and if you can remember the scene in Inglorious Bastards the basement scene where all the Nazis and the they're drinking they're drinking and they have Diana Kruger yeah there's that big gunfight at the end of that scene where it's just like people are dying in every direction people like it's so much crazy action and they like 
they somehow can in 10 seconds edit it in a way where you, you get see the chaos everyone, yeah. and you get to see everything happening. That's the way this plays out where Cropsy steps out of the canoe, is on the raft, is stabbing everyone. He cuts off Fisher Stevens' fingers and then like, st- like someone get Eddie gets stabbed in the throat. Uh, the curly-haired pigtail girl gets like her head cut slashed, open. She's yeah. like slashed open. Um, Marnie definitely gets stabbed. Uh... Marnie Marty and Fish definitely get stabbed in some way. But, like, yeah, the point is, everybody dies. And suddenly, and like, this is... It's so sudden. The body it's count... so fast. Like Carrie said, the body count is ten people in this movie, and you have five deaths in a minute, but you actually... It's not, like, like a bomb going off or one of those things where it cuts away. You're just, like, suddenly out of nowhere, because it's just, like, five kids on a raft, what seem to be rolling up to an empty canoe, all of a sudden, a man is murdering them in the middle of the river. And there's nowhere for them to escape, and uh, they just... It just happens in a way where you just gather all this violence, and it, it happens quick. It, I don't know, it just... It's such a, a well-done surprise scene. It's like the whole movie has essentially been building up to this moment. Yeah. There's no other big set piece or anything. Even, like, the ending of the movie isn't really a set piece. This is the big scene, and it works so well. It's it's, it's just the one moment in the movie where everything seems to come together. It's, it's the, for me, it's the only scary part of the movie. In a movie that's supposed to be a horror movie, yeah. it is the scariest part of the movie. And it's very effective. Like you said, the editing is really great, and... It go the 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 thing that's almost frustrating about it is that it happens so fast. You're like, what? What? If you blink, you miss it. You know, you're you're like, wait, you've been waiting for what an hour for something to happen, and yeah. then all of a sudden, within less than a minute, five people die, and you're like, oh my god! Oh, I guess now this is a horror movie, and. And is this one of the scenes where after they all die, it fades to red? Yeah, there's two scenes where it fades to red. <laughs> Both of them involve the raft, because the other time is when um, Michelle, who is, like, the female Todd. She, She's the female she, counselor. She finds, she swims up to the raft, and a, a, dis, uh, a dismembered arm falls on her, and she screams. And then, and well, and red. then Fisher Stevens comes up out oh, yeah. of the water. Which doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Because he, that, like, that doesn't make any sense. But he somehow is in the water, despite the raft having floated downriver to where it took off from. But, so that that's, yeah, that's the big scene. Um... All the kids, uh, when when the raft floats back down and Michelle finds the dead bodies, all the rest of the kids see the bodies and they're all traumatized. Oh my god, that's the best when they when they fade to red and then the next scene is just all the kids crying on the beach, <laughs> saying "We're all gonna die." We're gonna die. Like, they're like holding each other. One girl is standing and another girl's wrapped around her legs, yeah. crying. They like they they resign themselves to death, and it's really funny because in most movies like this. All of these characters would be picked off, and after, or or they would like feign confidence. But after this, after this moment where they're like, "We're all gonna die," they get they get on the raft and they get back to camp. The end. The no more plot for them. They are literally yeah, they're done. done. Yeah. They're done in the plot. Uh, so what is left of the movie is okay. So there's a, well, there's there, a death. There's Glazer's death. Yeah. Which, uh, I feel like if we're going to talk about Glazer's death, we kind of just need to talk about the editing <laughs> in general. Oh, yeah. Well, and it was frustrating to watch, 
you know, a great scene where the, you know, the, the raft scene happens. And then almost immediately following that, there's a death scene with, with Sally and Glazer, who we mentioned earlier, they have sex in the middle of the woods. And Glazer leaves, and Sally gets murdered by Cropsey, and then Glazer comes back, and he gets murdered by Cropsey. But what we didn't mention is the editing during that scene is atrocious. Yeah. It is impossible. Like, you really have to lean into the movie and give it a lot of of credit where it doesn't deserve credit to believe the scene that happens. Which, you know, that's the whole thing with movies. You have to suspend belief. Well, but it's... But, but it's, it's not good storytelling. But it's not even it's not even good storytelling. Like you're it's it's totally separate from that. Yeah, it's just it's, bad editing. It's just it 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 basically suggests something totally physically impossible happening. Yeah. And not in a supernatural way. Okay, to give you an example to set up what we're talking about, earlier in the movie, like Carrie mentioned, there's the scene where Sally's taking a shower and Alfred is peeping on her. Well, during that scene uh, we see just we see Sally in the shower. She's rubbing her hands through her hair. There's like a low shot where she's she's washing her hair, and we see her breasts. And it's and just kind of like that. And then next cut, she's all of a sudden got soap in her. It's hair. just soapy hair. It's like it's basically like the edit put it in her hair. It's like that's <laughs> yeah. exactly how it looks. And it's, it, it, her hair is so lathered up that it's instantly noticeable. Like yeah. it's not like we're just. Like, it's, like, they had a we shot. We didn't imagine that soap. They had a shot where she was soaping up her hair, and she edited it out. They edited she it out. She had soapy nipples. Uh, but so, so think of that type of editing. And now, there's the scene. Do you want to describe this moment? Yeah, moment? of course. Yeah, do it. Because I pointed it out. So, Glazer, he left to go get matches, which, what the fuck. But he comes back with the matches. And when he comes back, it is, like, there's a clear blue sky behind him. Like, there's tree cover, and you can still see how blue of a sky it is. Yeah, it's very confusing whether it's night or day. But regardless, he sees Sally is in the sleeping bag, and she's kind of covered up by the sleeping bag. So he approaches her, he pulls part of the sleeping bag down to reveal just her face, and he's like, Sally, wake up! Sally, I got the matches! And then he pulls back the sleeping bag a little more, and what he reveals when he pulls it back is he reveals the garden shears that Cropsy uh, has been using to kill everyone. Then the next cut is the garden shears are going through Glazer's, what, chest, throat, body, and essentially lifting him off the ground. And then cut to... Cropsy is standing, like fully standing off the ground, and he's pushing Glazer into a tree with the garden shears and effectively kills him. And that's the scene. But let's be clear how many seconds would you say from the moment that Glazer sees the shears to the moment where he's like dead against the tree? How three? Three seconds. And so in three seconds, Cropsy, who is not just a human a non-supernatural enemy. Huge man. He's a huge human being, but also a man who has suffered burns over his entire body. So I can't imagine he's like he, he he shouldn't be the most mobile man. He's also been in in hospital for five years, <laughs> probably not <laughs> super years. great shape. But he somehow in three seconds goes from laying so flat in a sleeping bag that despite the fact that he's sharing it with 
another person, a dead body, granted, but he's sharing it with a person, and no one can tell. To, to be fair, Sally was very slender. Also, to be fair, <laughs> the movie, the, supposedly the scene might be taking place at night. So maybe that's part of the excuse. Uh, but if it, it, like, either way, the way it is filmed, it is, it, so, okay, but either way. Glazer watches this back. But looks, here's the thing, Paolo, it almost, like, okay, for me, as just a, uh, an audience member, not as, like, a film critic. I know, I'm trying to explain but steps. It, but it, as an audience member, it almost doesn't matter that that's so impossible for Cropsy to have just immediately stood up and stabbed Glazer. Yeah. Because... The whole time, you just want Glazer to get murdered because he's such a terrible character. Yeah, but to continue what I was saying about the steps of how this plays out, he's he walks up to the sleeping bag. There's no way that you could ever guess that a giant man is in the bag. Glazer does not open the bag all the way up. He right. pulls the top of the bag down just enough so that on screen we see the blades. So, in theory, what that means is that None of Cropsy is even visible. All that's visible. So he's laying down in that like bottom part of the bag, yeah. holding the blade. No, up. it makes no sense. And as soon as the blade is visible, he. I'm just like, think about that, listener. Think about like if you've ever been in a sleeping bag and you've like pushed your head down so your whole body's in there. Imagine going from that position while holding a sharp object above your head to standing. And like killing somebody in three seconds. It's like the way it's just, it is so amazingly impossible that it's like, did they just lose footage? Did they just like think it would work? And then when they shot it, they realized it didn't like, it's, it's just so like, it's so blatantly weird. But like Carrie said, yeah, it does, like the effect is easy. Like the effect works, but if you are paying yeah, attention to the Blazer shots, is such a, such a villain, but if you're paying attention to the shots at all, it's just it, yeah. It's, it, well, yeah. and it happens again in the climax where uh, Todd. So to to skip ahead a little, everyone on the raft uh, who escaped they survive, and Michelle grabs the supervisor from the camp, and they get into a motorized boat, and they're trying to find Alfred and Todd who are stuck back at the campsite uh, with Cropsy, and uh, so Alfred's getting chased by Cropsy. While Todd is chasing Alfred and Cropsy so he can find Alfred, they end up in a, um, a mine of some sort, and it's abandoned. And there are scenes where Todd is in the mine, and he's standing in front of this mine cart, and Cropsy pushes another mine cart from up top down, and it crashes into the, the mine cart that Todd is standing in front of, and it later, in that same scene, it cuts to Todd standing in front of the minecart where there's no crash of minecarts. There's also a scene where Todd is standing, and the next cut is he's laying down and his arm grabs an axe, and then the next scene he's standing up and he's holding the axe. Yeah. There's just a lot of, like, weird continuity edits that I think... They, like you said, they either just didn't have the footage or they were like, well, this works good enough. Like, who's, yeah. who's going to really care about this? Well, and again, the guy who edited this movie went on to be a director in his own right. 
uh, Jack Shoulder, who directed. I, I think what a him, name. I think of him specifically from directing Alone in the Dark, which is the geriatric horror movie featuring Martin Landau and Jack Pleasance, or Jack Palance and Donald Pleasance. So. Uh, uh, it's not as good as it sounds, but it's definitely worth watching. And I believe he's one of the three directors who did work on Supernova. <laughs> that that oh, disaster. Oh, that piece of garbage. So it's, I believe it's Jack Shoulder, Walter Hill, and Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> the three of them teamed up to make Aww, Supernova. That makes me sad. Yeah. But so let's. I mean, we're basically since you got to the Crapsy, end. Since, come out to play. <laughs> but since you got to that final, we're in the climax. Uh, I guess let's just talk about how Cropsy dies, and then let's go over some other. Well, concept. I mean, we already revealed that there's another burning. So yeah. So so basically, Cropsy <laughs> gets stabbed. Alfred stabs Cropsy with his garden shears. Cropsy has like a flamethrower and he's about to kill Todd. Where does he get that flamethrower? No idea. Maybe it's just because he's a caretaker and they have to like, I don't know, there's literally no reason for someone (laughs) to have a flamethrower at a campground. But he... Well, and then again, they're at a mine because they stumble. So, upon was a there mine. an abandoned flamethrower in the mine? Yeah, with like fuel and shit. Uh, but so, <laughs> Cropsy has it, and he's about to burn Todd. And Alfred, uh, who Cropsy had tied up Alfred, but Alfred gets free somehow. Again, it's not really shown, but Alfred gets free, grabs the garden shears, stabs Cropsy in the back. Cropsy falls down. Uh, Todd and Alfred are like, hey, we made it. We're going to escape. Cropsy pops back up and is about to, like, uh, choke him or something. And then Todd gets the axe and smash it. Like, basically just hits Cropsy right in the face with the axe and kills him. And then they set him on fire and burn his dead body. They really don't want him to come back as a ghost. Yeah. And then they walk out and then the very last scene is, like, a campfire... Sometime in the future after this, where yeah, they don't do a, a font uh, time skip. No, but it's it's like another a different camp counselor talking to a different group of kids about Cropsy and telling the story of Cropsy. So it's like it's I, I guess it's, full it's, it's that way in which the movie kind of relates to the Cropsy like heritage as an urban legend. Yeah, and so it's like like it's become a campfire story, but then it ends on that note. And then it's there. Like the, the end. The end. Like we said, it's a very straightforward, simplistic the burning. movie. But uh, so now that we've gotten through the movie, uh, what are some just side things that we should talk well, about? Well, one thing we didn't talk about at all is the music. Yes. And I know we have plenty to say about the music. So for you listeners, the score of the movie was done by Rick Wakeman. And you may not know that name, but have you heard of the band Yes? Yes, you have? Oh, have you heard of Owner of a Lonely Heart? <laughs> Owner of a Lonely Heart. But anyway, um, Rick Wakeman was a keyboardist and a pianist. He was actually considered one of the best pianists in Britain in the 70s. Uh, with the likes of, uh, didn't you say he was like the second best pianist compared to Keith Emerson? I, I think, I, I can't remember if I saw that he was the best and Keith Emerson was the second best or vice versa, but yeah. it's, they are the two. Yeah. Yeah. And if you remember, Keith Emerson just passed away, what was that, last year? Yeah. Yeah. But Rick Wakeman's still alive. He has released over 90 solo albums. Um, he is very prolific. 
But he was asked to score this movie, and he, uh, I thought he did a decent job. Yeah, it's, it's, considering his background, it's not as interesting of a score as, like I, I was saying before, Keith Emerson's score for Inferno, obviously, if you listen to that episode, you know I love that score, and, uh... Well, and that, the music is but fantastic. It, yeah, it is, it is a flat-out great score. It's great separate from the movie. This... Is, is still good, still interesting. It's way more complex than most of, like, the equivalent things. But it's it's not very memorable. It, it's effective yeah. without being, like, the type of thing that I want to go home and listen yeah, to. Yeah, it's not like with Inferno where afterwards you are going... Yeah, Inferno somehow has a score that's atmospheric and catchy. Like, it is like a Yeah, but with The Burning, yeah, the score... It, it's good, but it doesn't, um, I, I can't remember any of the songs. Yeah. I, or I, any I of the melodies I can't remember the melodies. Out. I'm sure I'll use some in the edit of this episode, listener. Yeah, listen. But, but um, I, I also found out that the, the guy, Rick Wakeman, the guy who scored the movie, he also collaborated a bunch with David Bowie. He actually played the Mellotron on Space Oddity. And he played, um, the keyboard on David Bowie's album Hunky Dory, which has Life on Mars and Changes and Oh You Pretty Things. Um, so yeah, he was a big deal in the 70s. He's a big, big deal guy. Yeah. And didn't you say, what were, what were you saying about like how he joined Yes? Well, just that uh, he had the opportunity, basically he was offered to join the Spiders from Mars, uh, David Bowie's backing band, or Yes. And he decided to go with Yes. And when he went to... <laughs> he said Yes to yes. yes. And he went to like meet with them and like, I guess, jam essentially to see if they work together. And during that jam session, one of the songs that they like, at least like created like an early version of was Roundabout. Which, Man. if you know, yes, That's Roundabout's crazy. like one of the definitive songs. It's also the star of the classic To Be Continued meme, which I hope is still funny whenever you are listening to this episode. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, just so, yeah, we found a way to tie memes into this 80s yes! Uh One thing I wanted to bring up uh, was I was... I was reading about the influence that this movie has had. And obviously it hasn't had like a big impact. Like there's a bunch of little things that this has influenced, but there's this video game called clock tower and, uh, uh yes. yeah. And clock tower is a point and click survival horror game. It's like one of the earliest survival horror games. I think it was made for super Nintendo, but I have a PlayStation one clock tower, <laughs> uh, but Clock Tower, the main villain is a character named Scissor Man. And if you look at the cover of the game, Scissor Man is holding these, sh- these I wonder what sheer-like scissors. Is. Yeah, and um, the shears, not just the way they look, but the way in which Scissor Man holds them is so blatantly evocative of the burning. And it's because the man who created the game is directly referencing the burning yeah. in the character design. But the other thing that was really interesting is that I found out that most of the game is inspired by Dario Argento movies, oh. and the main character is designed off of the main character of a future secret cinema movie, Phenomena. Oh. Jennifer Connelly's character in Phenomena is the model 
for the main character no the clock tower. And the villain is based off the villain from The Burning. So it's this this point and click horror game that unites these two types Weird. of horror. And it's a point and click horror game, so it's not as scary as like Condemned or Silent Hill or anything look, like that. I have played... But it still has like some really, really intense jump scares. Man, look, yeah. I've played Actually Clock Tower is scarier than the burning, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I've played plenty of Nancy Drew computer games and those games are even scary sometimes. You know, sometimes a ghost comes out yeah, or well... uh needs some torque. Well, Kiwi and Clock Tower, you'll be playing, and you'll take your mouse and click on a door, and then a man with a pair of bloody scissors will come out and cut <gasps> your head off. Like, shit like that. <laughs> so Is there, like, a undo button in Clock Tower? No. You just die? You just die. Also, Clock Tower has multiple endings, depending Ooh. on uh, what you do. Yeah, we'll have to play it, because we that own it. That sounds like fun. Yep. We should try and get some royalties from promoting Clock Tower. Play Clock Tower, everybody. <laughs> no one no one will like it. No, like, no one would ever... Like, Clock Tower is way too retro. There's <laughs> gotta be a YouTube video of someone playing it that you can just watch. Oh, I have. I have watched it, so I know there are. <laughs> but it's, it's the type of thing that, like, only would appeal to you if you are, like, the type of person who's, like, a point-and-click survival horror game. <laughs> oh, my God, sign me up. Like, it's not... A I have hours to kill. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that's really it for stuff I have to reference. There's... Same for me. There's not really too much I want to say, so I guess if... Oh, wait, there seemed like there... Oh, yeah, there was one other weird thing I wanted to bring up. Uh, so, I saw, Carrie, you wrote this on your notes, too. But the director, like we said, Tony Malum, if that's how you even pronounce it, he's not really a famous director. No, he has not directed many things. Like, I saw... The thing I saw was that the kind of same reason they got Rick Wakeman is the same reason they got Tony Malum on this, which is that... Uh, Harvey Weinstein was like a music promoter before he oh. became before he tried to get in the film industry, and so he knew Rick Wakeman through that, and he also knew Tony Malum because Tony Malum did like rock music documentaries. Videos. I thought, oh I, yeah, documentaries. I could, I think I could be wrong, but I think one of the things he he's credited on IMDb with is like a Genesis uh, concert film or documentary. Oh well, that makes like sense that. in the context of Yes. Yeah, it does. But if you go to related artists on Yes, you oh, will it's definitely get. It's prog rock, yeah. yeah. Uh, but and then Jethro Tull's right next to them. But there's a movie. There's a movie that he did. Another movie he directed later in 1992 called Split Second. <laughs> and I was just looking this up because I was trying to see if he had made a movie of any like quality <laughs> before this, and it really doesn't look like it. Split uh, Second stars. Wait, uh, hold on. Oh. I, I, I was just. I want to read the plot summary. That one of the two, the the funnier of the two plot summaries that's written on IMDb. Okay. But this is how someone summarized the plot of Tony Malum's film Split Second, which as a bonus is written by a man who also wrote a Jackie Kong movie. Oh my the god! Tired of the Blood Diner. Which but Jackie Kong movie? The Underachievers. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Okay, so the plot of Split Second. Uh, in 2008, London is suffering from the worst flooding in a decade. As the water levels rise, Harley Stone is a neurotic veteran cop who seeks revenge on the creature that killed his partner. As a new rookie is assigned to him, Stone must find the killer, rescue his girlfriend, and fight off his own inner demons as he gets closer and closer to his mysterious enemy. Like, split second. Split second. I, like, that movie just 
And it doesn't sound that weird, but it just something about the comedy well, makes sense. So the stupid. thing I was gonna say is the main character is Rutger Hauer. And the other one is Kim Cattrall. Oh my god. <laughs> wow. Oh poor oh, Kim. Oh man, Cattrall. there's some there's like some good people in this. Wait, like, who else? Pete Postlewaith is in <gasps> this. Ian Dury from Ian Dury and the Blockheads, who Ian Dury the only thing you would probably know him from is he's also in The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her oh, Lover. Oh, man. Uh, but, yeah, weird people I would not expect to see. So, maybe we gotta watch this split-second movie. Shit, I am always down to watch a Rutger Hauer movie. Yeah, it's described as an action crime horror film. Anyway, let's get into our teachable moments if we have nothing else to talk about. Do you have one ready? I... I have like a mix of a couple, so I was going to let you go first. Okay. Um, I don't really have one ready, so I guess I'll just give one a shot. Um, <laughs> Wait so, a minute. Yeah. So with with a movie like The Burning, uh, it's survive not survival horror, I'm talking about video games, but it's a horror movie, and obviously we said it's not really scary, but you do see what is essentially a very bare bones blueprint of what we've described as like the summer camp horror movie, which... Uh, there's very clear tropes, like the kids are isolated, they're stalked through the woods, or they're watched at night. There's all these sorts of things. And this movie is not uh, really written to any degree. Like, there's there's stuff that happens, there's a clear, like, progression of events, even if the time doesn't make sense and the specifics don't make a lot of sense. But there really was not any attempt to make this a movie that was anything more than like a calling card. This is a, I mean, this is the like almost literally. Oh yeah. This a is a calling card movie. Yeah. And what that's, what's really interesting is that, uh, the people who wrote this were the people who were trying to, uh, they're trying to make this their calling card. And the thing that is most impressive about it is not the writing, but the technical aspects. Mm-hmm. And so, Again, I know we've talked about this many times on the show. This has been a, f- a final thought in a lot of ways. But uh, the degree to which you put effort into your shots makes so much of a difference. And especially, if, like, we've talked about this before where movies are beautifully shot. Like, I go to Images, a movie that I like but other people don't like as much, <laughs> which is beautifully shot but dull as hell. Like, unbelievably yeah. slowly paced. But this is beautifully shot and it's a genre that while dumb is to Carrie and I inherently interesting or captivating and we want to see where it goes. We want to see what they try. And so because it's material that is good, no matter what, by putting that extra effort into not just shooting it kind of well, but shooting it to look good. It's not artistically shot, but it's just shot to look good. It yeah. shot. There's backlight. Uh, there's so many scenes. There's like a scene I pointed out where it's a bunch of girls in their in their cabin, and there's a door open in the background specifically to give the girls backlight. And uh, like night shots are. There's so much light in the shots that are clearly sh- filmed in the dark, so that you can see everything you need to, and it doesn't look like floodlights are on. Like yeah. there's motivated lighting. There's all these little things, and so I guess. My roundabout teachable lesson is that... (laughs) Roundabout. uh, Yeah, nice. uh, (laughs) Is that there are certain times when you can just do that little bit of effort to make a movie so much better. As long as you know what type of movie you're making, who your audience is. And The Burning is a really good example 
of like not exactly trying really hard, but knowing where to try hard. Yeah. And if you watch this movie, you should get some ideas, if you, especially if you're a low-budget filmmaker or you're going to make like a slasher movie, like what things will, if you just make sure to focus on them, will give your movie that little bit of a boost. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. Well, yeah, and I want to piggyback on your teachable lesson because I, I want to echo everything you said about how this movie... I th it, it's clear that there were limited resources. Like, one of the trivia uh, items of this movie is they didn't have a costume person ever on set. And so everyone who's in the movie is, is mostly wearing their own clothes or clothes that they thought, you know, kids who were at a camp would wear. And so you can work within limited resources to create something that still looks good and is worth watching. Um... My other teachable uh, idea, I'm not going to say moment because it's more of an idea, is I truly believe that the horror genre is a easier way to break into the film industry than almost any other genre for beginning filmmakers. Because it is a genre that doesn't require as much from you as a filmmaker and it also relies heavily on innuendo and suspense and sometimes darkness which can really lend itself to a beginning filmmaker but also a filmmaker with limited resources yeah. and so you know a lot of people I talk to they, they're like, oh, well, you like horror movies. And they almost say it as, a, like, a slam on my, <laughs> my, like, my ability to like movies. Like, oh, well, I don't like horror films. But there are horror films for everybody. There's a lot, like, like we've said, this movie isn't that scary. It's, it's, but... The, the the thing with horror is everyone enjoys, even if they don't want to admit it, everyone enjoys being scared to some extent. And the audience's willingness to be scared gives you, as a filmmaker, plenty of room to play around. And so, I guess what I'm trying to, in a long, drawn-out way, uh, what I'm trying to say is that horror is a great way to get into the film industry and i think that's what the weinsteins have done yeah because they have not really produced any other horror movies we talked about the scream movies yeah, well yeah scream yeah. but scream also could be considered horror comedies well but still uh that still counts and i yeah. mean if you're counting the weinsteins working at tarantino then you gotta count death proof Okay, fair yeah. enough. But I would say a majority of what they've focused on are dramas or, yeah. you know, they they do like the thriller genre, but I, I, I don't see that they have necessarily stayed particularly in horror. Yeah, well, my point that I made at the very beginning of the discussion was just that because they started their film career in this genre, they have a better appreciation for weirder or less, like, clean forms of yeah. entertainment because they know that they at least know what goes into it they know that it can be made cheaply but it's still like and that it's appealing around. yeah yeah definitely and really quickly i remembered something i totally wanted to mention throughout the episode and forgot until now 
but in this discussion of low budget uh, and doing a lot with little, we have to mention Tom Savini, makeup and special effects uh, oh, yeah. person extraordinaire, who has worked on plenty of movies and here is responsible for so many amazing little gore effects, so many gruesome stabbings and like fingers being chopped off and the uh, Cropsy's melted face and all this stuff. He, he is so good at working on such a low budget. If you've ever seen, if you've ever seen the movie Maniac, the original, there's a scene where Tom Savini did makeup for himself as a character who gets his head blown off. And that head explosion is one of the greatest head explosions in film history. It's so gruesome and so detailed. It's so, it's so effectively gory. He's one of the masters of gore and, uh, but absolutely the master of low budget gore. He does such a good job with it. And this is another just little highlight for him. Yeah. But yeah, that's pretty much it for me. So yeah, the burning. Yeah, the burning. Watch it if uh, we this, burned the burning. If it sounds good to you, uh, but uh, I would yeah. totally understand if it didn't sound good to you. We <laughs> did kind of say that fifty minutes of the movie had nothing in them. That's kind of <laughs> hard to undo. But this has been the Secret Cinema. I'm Paolo. I'm Carrie. Thanks for listening. Cinema is produced and edited by Paolo Carone. All theme songs and original music are written and performed by Ricardo Ortiz. Any additional music or samples are taken from the film featured on this week's episode. All logos and artwork are created by Carrie Jacob. You can follow Carrie on Instagram at Carrie Saw This and see more of her artwork at www.carriechafee.com. You can watch Paolo's short films at www.vimeo.com slash or read more of his ramblings about film at www.letterbox.com slash Follow The Secret Cinema on Instagram at Secret Cinema Podcast, on Twitter at Covert Celluloid, or like us on Facebook. The Secret Cinema is a commentary and criticism podcast, and its use of film dialogue and film music for illustrative purposes falls under the fair use provisions of U.S. copyright law. The Secret Cinema is a product of Larry Lady Productions. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening.